Turn to Hosea chapter 3, a very small chapter, five verses. That's it. That's all you get tonight. But it's so incredible. It is probably one of the most amazing prophecies in the whole entire Bible. Probably the least talked about prophecies in the whole entire Bible is Hosea chapter 3. Will God, will God cast away his people? Will God cast away his people? The title of the message today, Hosea chapter 3. Well, we've known that Hosea is going to get into some very, very difficult topics to discuss, especially chapter 4, probably all the way to the end, but especially 4 to 11. They're very much a very difficult passages to not only to teach, to swallow, to understand, because Hosea is, um, it's written such passion and when you write passion passionately, it doesn't necessarily have to follow a logical sense, a logical sequence. When you write something historical, you try to write it in the sequential order. When you're writing poetry and you're writing something from the heart, it doesn't necessarily follow through, it doesn't necessarily follow it all along. I've been told that if you're going to write a love letter, you don't try to figure out what to say. You write it as you go. And uh, even after you write it, you don't know what you wrote, but uh, I don't know if you wrote love letters before, but uh, maybe Andre can tell us how, much, how many love letters you wrote to his wife. But nonetheless, this is what Hosea is. From chapter 4 and on, it's the passion of God, it's the tears of God, it's the love of God manifested through Hosea for his people. Why? Because Hosea is going to be dealing with something God is dealing with his own people. He's going to talk about religion. He's going to talk about morals. He's going to talk about politics. And remember, when we mention politics, and we talked about that in our first chapter, don't take the chapter about politics and apply it to the U.S. Uh, president or the Congress or Senate. They're two totally different things. Israel was a theocracy. Therefore, the religion and the state were the same. The kings, the priests, they were all under God. In a secular society, which we are, it doesn't apply to Mr. Trump, the White House, the Congress, the Senate, the Supreme Court. The verses here about politics and leadership, it applies to the church, the pastors, the leaders, the elders, right? That's what it applies to. The priest, oh, that applies to that. And so we have to take it to apply it to the church as God's people because they were God's people in the Old Testament, the Israel. They are God's people still today. But in the Old Testament, it was a very real sense that they were under God, a theocracy under God. God was their leader, and they were abandoning the word of God. Now, Hosea had an issue. That was his wife. Chapter 1 and 2, we talked about that. I'm not going to go over the whole thing again. His children, but mainly his wife, Gomer. She is an adulterous woman. She is a... Uh, a a woman of um, ill repute, and uh, he marries her, Hosea marries her, and he, she leaves him after having children with Hosea. Now, scholars argue all the time whether the last two were actually Hosea's. We know the first one was absolutely true, Jezreel. The other two are a question mark, and this is part of the drama. Illegitimate children, but Hosea still loves them, and Hosea still ra raising them up. But in chapter 2, we're told that even the children come against Gomer, and they, they, they rebuke her mother because of her lifestyle, because of her wickedness. She leaves the marriage, goes and finds other lovers, goes and finds other men in a relationship, even though she's still married. 
and she has this affair, and Hosea is broken about this. And because of his brokenness, God says to Hosea, now you can preach. Now you have a message because Hosea, as much as you feel for your wife, I feel the same for mine. And Israel was married to the Lord. Israel was in a covenant relationship. And we talked about that in chapter, in chapter 1, even at the intro. The covenant has to do with fidelity. God was to do this for Israel. Israel was to return in faithfulness and obedience to God. God was going to take care of her, drive all the enemies out, was going to provide for her, and he did all these things, maintain faith and faithfulness to Israel. Israel was to maintain faith and faithfulness to God. They didn't. Right away, they didn't. And I showed you that picture, right? The chuppah with the golden calf. They were at their wedding date. God had brought her to Sinai to marry her, and she was already with the golden calf, with Baal. And so Israel did not remain faithful, and therefore, the question is, Gomorrah is gone. Israel has been cast away, but the promises of God are this, that he will bring them back. It will be a chastisement. There will be a point of chastisement in their own lives. And as a nation, they will go through the severity of God's punishment. It wasn't easy, but God was going to bring them back. And so how does Hosea relate to the New Testament? I wanted to bring this up very quickly because... Many people misconstrued, and there's a terrible, terrible disease in the body of Christ, a bad, terrible teaching called replacement theology, which basically draws this conclusion somewhat from Hosea. And we'll talk about that in a moment. There's more. Uh, but how is Hosea used in the New Testament? Now, it's interesting that in the New Testament, Hosea is not used quite a bit. The, the, the passages of Hosea are not used that many. But the ones that are in the New Testament are quite interesting. So I encourage people to listen to the Bible in stereo. It's another one that we got. Uh, listen to the Bible in stereo. Old Testament, New Testament together. How is Hosea in the New Testament? Well, if think of a tapestry. Uh, if you're building a tapestry and you've got all these bunch of strings going on and you go, how in the world is this ever going to look? You've got strings going this way, strings going that way. If you ever knitted something or if you've ever been in tapestry, you realize that it doesn't look pretty on one side. But once you have an idea of what it would look like, it creates a, a beautiful picture because the one who, is, who has something in mind, the artist or the person who's putting it together, they could see the strings, and somebody that doesn't know may say, this is a mess. But somebody that knows, has a picture in mind, can see the fullness of that tapestry, full. And this is what the Old Testament is. God's putting it together. And he doesn't show us everything yet completely, but he's got a plan in place even for Israel. Now, let's look at Paul, and let's turn to Romans chapter 9, because this is one of the passages that we see, uh, this incredible passage on Romans regarding Israel. Now, there's a lot to be said on Romans, and uh, I'll belabor the point. Maybe one day, if God gives us that grace, we'll study it. Uh, but it's not, in my, it's not in my plans at this point to teach it. But in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, we're told that a people that were not his people were called, uh, a, a people, the children of Israel, were called not my people. But in the same place that they were called my people, they will be called the children of the living God. This is quoted in Romans 9, so let's... Romans 9, 25. 
Actually, I want to start at verse 24. You can see the, the flavor of it. Paul says, Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but from among the Gentiles. And he also said in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Exactly from Hosea. Now Hosea is talking to the children of Israel, that they were going to be unfaithful. God was going to separate himself from them for a time. And then he was going to reverse it. The children of Hosea were a symbol of his rejection. Jezreel, one that sows. Lo Ruhama, right? No compassion. Lo Ami, not my people. But, chapter 2, in the same place that they were called not my people, and no compassion, he will say, you are my people, and I will have compassion on them, and I will plant you right in the land. Jezreel, I will plant you back in the land. So God reverses everything that he had first said about the judgment against Israel, why they were sinning, the idolatry, the immorality, the idol worship, everything that they've gone through, God was going to reverse it. But Paul uses it here, interestingly enough, not necessarily only of the Jews, but he incorporates the Gentiles. And he says the Gentiles were once not his people, and they're going to be called his people. The Gentiles were once going to be, they were once not loved, they're going to be loved. And they're now going to be called the children of the, the sons of the living God. And so people say, ah, see, there it is right there. The Gentiles are the new people of God. Unfortunately, they probably failed hermeneutics and, and, and shouldn't be teaching it that way because you never, take, you never take just one passage in isolation from all the other passages. You first have to find out, what did Hosea mean where he used that passage? Well, that passage is strictly for Israel. The judgment was coming from Assyria. Eventually happened 722 BC. They were cast off, but God never changed his mind. In fact, the same chapter 9 through 11 of Romans goes on to say, will God cast away his people? Certainly not. And he uses one of the most emphatic Greek language, uh, in Greek language, one of the most emphatic no's you can possibly ever can think of. It's like, Paul is definitely trying to tell us that it's not going to happen. No, not ever. You can translate it that way, but it's, it loses its flavor. God won't do that to Israel. Even in Hosea, you will see passages later on where it says, Oh, Ephraim, which is a, a, a name for Israel, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? Is God lamenting over his people and says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to bring you back, but I'm going to discipline you for a time. And you'll see that today. And, of course, Romans, it's a very interesting book, and uh, uh, my take of Romans is chapter 9 through 11. It's the climax of the book. I know in some places, chapter 1 through 8, that's all there is. In fact, there's a joke about chapter 1 through 8. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing after 1 through 8. That, that's the joke in many churches. You don't, church, you know, churches that, teach, that take seriously the Bible. These are not like liberals. Uh, there's nothing left after 8, they say. There's nothing left after eight. That means that for eight chapters, Paul went on to explain the gospel and all these things. And then they say, well, chapter 9 through 11, it's all about Israel. And we don't have nothing to do with Israel. So we don't even know why it's in there. And so they just kind of skip it and they just move on to chapter 12. 
Oh, the mercies of God, and you have to present your life a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Oh, isn't that great? It's like chapter 9 through 11 didn't happen. In fact, I've read commentaries where he said Paul had this like sermon that he had in his back pocket, and he just kind of put it in there to fill up the book. I don't know. I mean, I guess you have to sell a book. You have to sell a book, right? But the idea is this. Paul is not trying to insert something just to take up space. The point of Romans is 9 through 11. That's the whole point. He's trying to tell us to a church that had, the Jews had been gone for a time from Rome, according to Acts. They were left, they got kicked out of Rome, in Acts 21, and Her uh, uh, not Herod, I'm sorry, um, Nero brings them back for economic reasons, kind of like Hitler, very similar to Hitler. He brings them back because Jews are good for the economy. Now, every Jew would have been gone. Christian Jews, you know, believing Messianic Jews would have been gone out of Rome. The church in Rome, which was made up of both Jew and Gentile, after the Jews would have been kicked out, he would have been completely left to, it would have been a Gentile church, strictly a Gentile church, because there's no Jews in Rome. When the Jews come back, after Nero brings them back, now there's a problem in the church of Rome, the church, in, in the, 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 the church that was planted by believing Jews from Acts. The problem was, Jews are gone. They've been gone for a while. Now they're back. What do we do with these Jews that have come back? The idea of um, replacement theology is not new. It's been gone on for quite a long time. The idea was, well, the Jews were driven out of Rome. That means God's done with them. This is a Gentile church. And once the Jews came back and they started coming into the church, the idea was, are the Jews still God's people? Or is the church God's people now? And they had this huge issue about it. And there was a split within the church of Rome. Are the Jews supposed to be God's people? Or is the church supposed to be God's people? Now, what's interesting thing is um, Aquila and Priscilla knew about this issue, and they're the ones who probably told Paul, hey, something's going on in Rome that's going to be really, really bad. Now think about this. Believing Jews, believing Christians, aren't they all part of the body of Christ? Should be. Did God intend to have two bodies on this earth? No. But Paul knew that if this theology would have, would have started. It would have separated the body of Christ. You would have had Gentile churches and Messianic churches. And it did happen, by the way. You don't have a lot of Messianic believers coming to Gentile churches, and you don't have a lot of Gentiles going to Messianic churches. See, the fracture is still there. Paul was trying to remedy that and say, look, from chapter 1 through 8, just, just read it with that in mind. He's trying to tell us that all of us have sinned. The Jews have sinned. What's the major sin of the Jews? If you remember Romans, Romans 1 through 3, the major sin of the Jews is religious hypocrisy. They have the law. They know better. They still sin. Not the same way the Gentiles sin. How do Gentiles sin? Think of chapter 1. You got to read Romans, right? Give you homework. Everybody read Romans this week. The major sin of the Gentiles is idolatry and immorality that leads to homosexuality, chapter 1. What is the sin of the Jews? It's not that. 
You don't have a lot of Jews, especially in the first century, getting into that. They actually abstained from that. The issue was religious hypocrisy. Ultimately, Paul says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Eventually, all of us need to be redeemed by Christ through faith. Eventually, all of us will become children of Abraham by faith and by biology. Jews are bio biologically by, uh, by Abraham. We're children of Abraham by faith. Gentiles are. All of us have to struggle with our nature, chapter 6 through 8. We have a new nature. We need the Spirit of God. All of us need to do that. And he sets this up and he says, okay, now that I told you that Jews and Gentiles have sinned, that Jew and Gentiles need to be saved, that Jew and Gentiles are saved the same way through the Messiah, now I can tell you what's going to happen to Israel. So eight chapters, he sets it up, and it's very wise to do it. Find common ground with whom you're talking to. And now chapter 9 through 11, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to Israel. You want to know, and he goes into this beautiful eschatological, pull in the Old Testament, and this is what he does. Uh, this is what, not to get too over, this is what happens. I lose time. Intertextuality. What does that mean? Simple. I know. Like, how do I put it? This is, this is, this is a, uh, something we need to get used to because it's a very simple terminology. Using other scriptures to reference when you're writing something. All right? So Paul is writing, but he's using other scriptures. What does he use? Hosea. That's right. He used the Old Testament. What does Matthew use? Matthew's like full of this. Matthew uses Old Testament scriptures. In fact, when we get to, I believe it's chapter 13, he pulls from Hosea in a very interesting way. Um, now, remember the story of Israel and Hosea? These are his children. God plants. By the way, the Jezreel Valley, got a picture of it here. It's a beautiful valley. It's a beautiful valley in which ultimately this is where the final battle will take place. I know we call it the Valley of Armageddon. It, Armageddon is really not a valley, just a little mountain. But the valley is Jezreel. It's the Jezreel Valley. This is the final battles. The final battle will take place all the way from here, all the way down to Jerusalem. What it says in the Bible. So look at me a little strange. That's what it says. So it'll start from there. It'll get all the way to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be under siege. But you have Lo Ami and you have Lo Ruhama, not my people, and they're going to be pitied. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that I'm pulling the Old Testament to show you that Israel is not completely cast away. They were put aside for a time. Because of the rejection of the Messiah, they'll be set aside for a time. And Gentiles are grafted into that. But it's not only Gentiles. It's Jews as well. Natural branches, he calls them. And eventually, you're going to have the tree full of Gentiles and Jews in the body of Christ. That's his goal. So the idea of having Messianic churches and Gentile churches, strictly that, it wasn't even the plan of God. It's unfortunate that we have that. But it's not really the plan of God. It started in Rome, a fractured of what Jews ultimately have to do. What is Jews? I mean, people today, ask the average believer today, except in a very, very few denominations, very few uh, church groups and things like that, 
most, most Christians believe the Jews are done. It's a very minority within the body of Christ that believe that God has not done his, uh, cast away his people. Even though the Bible says it, but it's interpreted in a different way. It's completely distorted out of all its context. And the reality of this is most people read the Bible like this. How am I going to get to heaven? That's really all they want to know. Unfortunately, that's not a good way to read the Bible. The Bible wasn't meant for you to fill your curious minds of, I just want to know how I get to heaven. I don't care about anything else. And to become very self-absorbed. In fact, Paul goes on to say that it's the faithlessness of Israel and the faithfulness of God that's at stake here. When we start believing this idea that God has done with his people, then we're calling God unfaithful. We're calling God unfaithful. Now, um, Paul is a rabbi. He wasn't a Protestant, so he uses a lot of Midrash ideas. He draws from the Old Testament, and he puts them in the New Testament and how the, a Jew would do it, Midrashically. I mean, he never stepped into a cathedral. You know, Paul didn't know what the Reformation was. Paul didn't know what any of these things were. And sometimes we see Paul like a reformer. And we say, oh, he's got to think like that. He never visited a cathedral. <laughs> he's never, he'd never been to the Vatican. Paul was a rabbi. He teaches like a rabbi. And he pulls from the Old Testament rich treasures so we can see. And actually, in Romans 9 to 11, he uses like 30, 30 different texts, allusions and direct quotes from the Old Testament, to give us this. If we think that the Bible was written just for us so that we can know uh, just what heaven would be, it would be great if I could just go to heaven. That's what the Bible is. By the way, people read it that, like that. I just want to know that I'm going to go to heaven. You miss a lot. And the idea is that the Bible has this incredible goal to the New Jerusalem. There's an immediate and a future goal that God has in mind. Yes, you live in the present. It's hard to live in the future. But there's an immediate and there's an end to God's plan. And so what we see in Hosea is this, that the children of God, those who are going to be his people, are composed of Gentiles and Jews together. And so if you have your glasses, you can see both. I know this is blasphemous to some people. Be like, what are you talking about? The Jews are done. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in the church, unfortunately. But I like to read what the Bible says. And the Bible says God has not cast away his people. And we'll read more about that in a moment. So I have to tell you, say this. Our faith has a root. This is right out of chapter 11. So if you look at me like, I've never heard of this. We probably have never read Romans. Our faith has a root. What is the root? That's right, the children of Abraham, the faith of Abraham. The stories in the Old Testament, the accounts of the Old Testament, that's part of our story. That's part of our genealogy, you would say, spiritually. I don't, I'm not a Jew. I don't, I don't have any ancestry that goes back to uh, Semitic people. But my faith goes back to that. And so I'm reading a book about a people that love the God that I love. I'm reading a book about a people that wrote the Bible. And so my faith has a root. It's, it's, 
in the Jewishness of the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Now, chapter 3 of Hosea, let's go there. All that to say is this. Is God done with his people? Well, before we answer that, let the Bible say what it has to say. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who's loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. We'll talk about the raisin cake in a moment. God is not into favorite desserts, but it is an interesting thing. Many scholars argue about this chapter because they say, is this chapter even supposed to be here? Like, who's he talking about? Does it even mention Gomer by name? And, and some scholars believe chapter 3 goes before chapter 1. And some scholars believe chapter 3 is a completely different story. Like, he's, um, Hosea is going after another woman, and he's uh, buying that woman out of the slave market. All kinds of interesting things. All of it to bog you down. More than anything else, I'm not here to bog you down, just to give the truth. And the reality of it is, it makes perfect sense that this chapter follows chapter 2. The Jews always looked at it that way. What has happened? Chapter 1, he marries Gomer, has children with her. You can question the other two, but we know for sure one is his, Jezreel, which adds to the drama, right? You had children, been raising children that are not your own. Now think about it like this, though. If it's true, if we're right about that, it would make sense. Because God says to Israel, you act like you're not my people when you worship Baal. I don't even know who you are. It's like God has illegitimate children. They're supposed to be his, but they're worshiping Baal. They're not his. They're supposed to be his, but they're not his. Not my people. His, the name of that boy would have reminded Israel of their illegitimacy even though they're supposed to be God's people, just like he was supposed to be Hosea's children, they were not his. God says, you're right, Hosea. You deal with that, I deal with that. These are not mine. I don't raise them like that. <laughs> and Hosea would have understood God's broken heart. Can you imagine raising children with your wife that are not even your children and having that cloud over your head like, this is, these are children of harlotry, and yet able to still go through with it. Now, it's interesting. Hosea is told to do this. He's told to go back and win her back. It says, love a woman. Now, why is she not mentioned by name? It's very simple. Gomer had gone out of the marriage and gone back into harlotry. She had children with Hosea, and she went back into prostitution. Now, whether she was a prostitute or not, as a paid prostitute in chapter 1, we don't know. Before the marriage, we don't know. But it doesn't matter. She lived that kind of lifestyle. She lived a very immoral lifestyle. So maybe she wasn't paid like a prostitute. But at that point, it doesn't really matter. You live like a prostitute, and that's what she was. And the uh, unbelievable story of Hosea marrying this woman and loving her and having children with her and then questioning if they were his and the broken heart of infidelity, the broken heart of infidelity, and I know believers that have dealt through this. I know believers that have stood uh, as the, 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 I would say the victim, but the one that was wronged in, in the case of their marriage, and it's very painful. This is the most difficult thing to go through is the pain of infidelity, and this is what Hosea had to deal with. 
His heart was broken. It is very difficult to bring a marriage back after uh, adultery, after infidelity. It's very difficult. I'll be very honest with you. Once that happens, it's very difficult. Now, God can put it back together. I've seen God's glory. I've seen God's grace toward that marriage. But it's a marriage that will deal with trust issues. It's a, it's a marriage that would deal with memories and thoughts and insecurities. It's very difficult. Um, that's why God says, don't go in that direction. Don't, don't, don't commit immorality. Don't go into adultery. Now, God may restore it, praise God. Sometimes it doesn't happen. And Jesus talked about this adulterous affair um, and divorce in Matthew 18, talking about divorce, that this is, this is the... the uh, the situation where they bring this to Jesus, and Jesus says, except for, and he uses the word pornea, right? A very encompassing word in the Bible, uh, which encompasses a lot of things, but one of them will be adultery, except for fornication, except for pornea. Now, it's translated fornication. Some people say, aha, I just only, it's only for single people. Well, <laughs> fornication can be for singles, but that word can also mean a prostitute. That word can also mean adultery. So it depends on the context. Are you married? Then it is adultery. Except for that, he says, you cannot divorce your wife. You cannot divorce your husband. Now, it's very difficult to bring a marriage back, like I said, but God can do anything. And if they're both willing to come back, God can put it together. But God calls Hosea to put aside his feelings. Can you believe this? God tells Hosea, look, I brought Israel to myself in Mount Sinai. I married her there. And as soon as she was there, she began to go with other gods. Now, this is, you know, this is not Israel, but this, you could tell the picture there. Husband and wife, and he's already flirting with another woman. Now, this is how God felt. Hosea, you know how I feel now. I love Israel. And you know, Hosea is told to put aside his feelings. This is, this is the most difficult part about this. Hosea, go get her. Under Jewish, under Jewish law, according to Deuteronomy 24, he could have given her a bill of divorce. He could have given her a certificate of divorce. Done. Done deal. He would have been lawfully divorced from this woman. Do you, you hear what I say? He would have been lawfully. That means that he would not have been breaking God's law. He would not have been an affront to God. He would have been sinning. He would not have been sinning. If he did what God said in his word, Deuteronomy 24 says, if you find anything that is immoral, wicked, in there, you can give her a certificate of divorce. Now, that verse has been so distorted of all kinds of, even by the Jewish Sanhedrin in the, in the first century, that the, they, they thought anything, you know, they thought anything that she did wrong was wicked. So if she burnt your food, that was wicked, you could put her away. If she didn't look as, uh, <laughs> if she didn't look as, uh, you know, she didn't look as good as she did when she was uh, in her 20s. And, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, oh, my goodness, what is this? Then you could uh, put her away. And they had stretched it and stretched it and stretched it so far out of its context that people didn't even know what it was. And they were just divorcing people left and right. Serial divorces. Left and right. No, no restraint. No restraint whatsoever. This is at the time of Jesus. And they were so confused in marriage. So I don't like today. Um, out of one thing that Jesus said, they have made it into this huge loophole that you can just get divorced for whatever reason. doesn't matter. She sn he snores. I was like, she snores. He snores. 
He, she doesn't cook right. She doesn't look this. She doesn't look that. And they've stretched it and stretched it and stretched it to the point that people are confused today because they took their circumstances and they backed it into the Bible. Well, these are my circumstances. Well, let's find the verse that fits that, shall we? No, you never live like that. You get into a lot of trouble if you live like that. Read the Bible and apply it to your circumstance. That's how you do it. Take the Bible, apply it to your circumstance. Then you'll, you'll be fine. You'll get it right. But people take their circumstances. Oh, you know, he, you know, I wasn't in love, and I had this thing, and I really liked this other girl, and, you know, it was never God's will, and I didn't want to marry, so God wants me happy. And they take all their circumstances, and they keep stretching it and stretching it, and then they say, God just wants me to be divorced. And it's like, God never said that. That's illogical. It's completely out of his character. It's completely against God's word. And it's a sin. So be careful when we use this. Hosea could have, but what did God say? Go win her back. Now, this is a very interesting thing because lawfully he could have, but he didn't. He's told to put aside his feelings. Why? I'll give you another example. Jeremiah is told not to marry. Early chapters of Jeremiah, he's told not to marry. Jeremiah, you're not going to get married. That was his calling as a prophet. Why? Think about it in God's terminology toward Israel, God's teaching through these prophets. Why isn't Jeremiah supposed to marry? Does anyone know? What's that? Keep him pure. Think about this. It's not to be happy. It's because God didn't have a wife at that moment. Right? Didn't have a wife. I don't have a wife. Where'd she go? Israel? Where, where'd she, where's she at? Have you seen her? I don't have a wife. So Jeremiah... You're not going to get married because somebody asks you, why don't you have a wife? You're going to tell them because God doesn't either. Oh, what? We're people of God. He doesn't recognize you as his wife. You have cheated. You have become an adulteress. You have left the marriage. God doesn't have a wife. Ezekiel, his, he was married. His wife dies. What does God tell him? Don't, why? Think about it in the same way. Because God's not going to mourn for Israel. Because they have left his marriage. They have left her, uh, left him. They have gone into other idols. And therefore, when they go to Judah, when they go to Babylon, and when they go to uh, Assyria, he's not going to weep for them. Now, it got really, really, uh, um, God's discipline was really strong. I mean, when you read verses like that, you go, man, God is pretty serious about this. Yes, he is. Absolutely, he is. And therefore, we should be serious about our marriage too. We should be very serious about our marriage and what it means. But he's told to put his feelings aside. And instead of doing what everybody else would have done, he would have been justified. He says, go get her. And his message was, I am going to win her back. Why? Because God is wanting to bring Israel back. You see the point? He's acting, his life mirrors God's heart for Israel. Okay, Hosea, you're brokenhearted. The pain of infidelity, we know. God understands Hosea. Hosea can understand God's perspective. I want you to go get her. But God, why? Because I love my people. I love Israel. I want them back. I want you to, I want you to love your wife and bring her back. And it's interesting. It says that the, lone, the, the, the idea that Hosea had to win her back is that he had to 
put aside his feelings and humble himself and go get her. You know, the difficult part about that. And it's interesting that in obedience, obedience does not require feelings. Have you ever noticed that? Obedience does not require feelings. And I know in our society, feelings are the number one thing we have to protect. It's the number one thing we have to covet. It's the number one thing we have to make sure we have is our feelings. And how do you feel about this verse? And how do you feel about God doing this? And do you feel like, you know, oftentimes I don't feel like it. There's times I've been sick. There are times I've been just tired. There's times I just... I haven't wanted him to come to teach sometimes because I just didn't feel. And you know what? You put on your shirt, you take a couple steps, and you go, right? Out of obedience to God. There's times where it would have been easier to, you know, think about it in your own life. It would have been easier to take a shortcut to sin or to lie or to go another direction. It would have been much, my flesh would have been, oh, this is fine. This is so beautiful. It would have been great. But that would have been my flesh, my feelings. And God says, obedience. Obedience, obedience, obedience. It's one thing, it's an interesting thing about your feelings. You know, your feelings will come along if you obey the Lord. The right feelings will come along if you obey the Lord. They will come kicking and screaming. I guarantee you that. Your feelings will come kicking and screaming, but they will come if you seek to obey the Lord. It is never a matter of your emotions. It's a matter of will and choice and your willingness and loyalty to God. That's obedience. It has very little to do with feelings. But in our, and in our society, we confuse them. We think if we feel great about something, that must be God. If we feel not so good about something, then it must not be God. And the children of Israel had this idea. And Hosea is called to love a woman we know it's Gomer, who is loved by her husband. Now, this word there, husband, has to do with companion. Now, I know it's the word husband, but it could be translated in so many different ways. Um, I want you to love a woman who is loved by her companion. Better translate it that way. Does anyone have a, you see what I'm saying, verse 1? By her companion. She had companions. She had friends. You can translate the word friends. She had a lot of friends. A lot of friends that used her. The Septuagint, the Greek version of this says, love a woman who loves wickedness. Love a woman who loves wickedness. She is an adulterer, adulteress. It says she's loved by her husband, companion, yet she's an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So we have this woman, Gomer, who is picked up by her husband, Hosea, wins her back, just like God wants to bring Israel back. Israel had other lovers that mainly looked like this. Ashtoreth and Baal and all kinds of other gods. We go into details on that. And uh, they had the golden calf and Bethel and Dan. They had uh, Molech and other pagan deities that they worshipped, Tammuz. You read that in the book of Jeremiah, the queen of heaven. Uh, you read that in, uh, in Ezekiel about Tammuz. Uh, this was being worshipped even in the temple. It is amazing what they went, how far they went into worshipping this God. And they talks about these, um, 
these false gods. The raisin cake, okay. Raisin cake is an interesting idea. 2 Samuel chapter 6 tells us that David gave away raisin cakes when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, it's not necessarily that raisin cakes are bad. It is actually a very common food in Israel's days. But what is God saying here in the context of it is that they were using cakes, raisin cakes, which was usually done to the worship of God or the celebration of the worship of God. They were using it to worship these deities right there. And we're told in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 44, that they worship the queen of heaven by making cakes, by making cakes. And so they had gone into full idolatry and they had confused the worship of God and they melted it together with other gods and therefore you had this confusion in the land that they even thought that by worshiping the golden calves, they actually were worshiping God. This is how deceiving false worship and false teaching can be, that you can think that you're doing the right thing and do the wrong thing. You think you're following the right God, but it's the wrong God. And God has to get their attention and says, you have been an idolater. You have been a adulterer. And it's a symbol of idolatry. It's a symbol of idolatry. And the reason why it's, 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 it's talking about the raisin cakes, because it's something of a sensual thing. Now, when they worship these deities, it was a sensual thing. It was a a fertility rite. They would get in, engage into sexual immorality and idolatry and, and sex and temples with prostitutes. And this was being done in Israel. This was among the nations. And then they brought it right into Israel. And you can see it today. Israel did not want to hear the word of God. They wanted to go and have raisin cakes. That's what it's saying here. Raisin cakes was a, type, a symbol of what they were doing with these false gods. Sensual. What pleases the flesh what pleases the senses. That's what sensual is. We would say psychedelic, something that is sens uh, for, the, for the senses. And um, I would say today that we have the same problem in the church. We love the sensuality, the feeling of emotion and euphoria and services, and we see that it's so good to feel good about this, that I don't even know what it is, but I feel so good that have come and have this sense, my senses being uh, heightened. And uh, I have the song. And yeah, the teaching's not good, but I feel so good about following God. And that's exactly what Israel was sensing at that time. They love the raisin cakes. Man, you could have lined them up because it was, had to do with their senses, it had to do with their emotions, it had to do with their carnality. And yet the word of God came through the different prophets like Micah and Hosea, and they didn't want to listen. We don't want, we don't care. And God had to get their attention. Now, this stimulation is very, very interesting. Most, in, in a lot of places today, many Christians make decisions based on stimulation, based on emotion. It, we live in a society that is based on emotions. You've seen these people on, on videos. It's all emotion. It's the most important thing in the world, emotion. And that can lead you so far away from God, so astray from the Word of God. Now, the Bible says to stay away from idols, to stay away from sin, specifically uh, run away from sin. Obedience to God is the priority in your life. Now, what to do when these things become a very real part of your life? The Bible says to run away from sin. <laughs> To stay away from sin and to stay away from things that caused you to sin. 
Now, there's a lot of things that people like. I think Christians like raisin cakes, too, if you understand the metaphor, right? We love raisin cakes. We love things that stimulate us and make us feel so good, even though they're apart from the Word of God. And then somebody brings it up and it says, no, that's not following God. That's not following. Oh, be quiet. Give us our raisin cakes. Now, the Bible says to get away from sin and the things that cause you to sin. Um, how do you defeat sin? You know, one major way to defeat sin, obviously, you have things like prayer, the Word of God, submission to God, uh, but fellowship. Fellowship and prayer with other believers, being strengthened and being encouraged by other believers. When a believer departs sometimes and isolates themselves, oftentimes, oftentimes more than others, they will fall into grievous errors and grievous sins because they're not in fellowship with God's people. They're not in fellowship with God's word. They're not in fellowship with God's spirit among the people of God. And remember, sin is very pleasurable for a season, it says. It's pleasurable for a season. You feel good about it. It actually heightens the senses, stimulates you. But in reality, it will destroy you. And that's what God's saying. They love these raisin cakes, but I love them. I want them back. And so... Hosea is to win her back and to buy her back. It says, I bought her for myself 15 shekels of silver, a homer, and a half of barley. Now, this is, uh, some scholars believe that it totaled 30 shekels of silver. Some scholars would believe that. Uh, I can't prove it. I can't prove that this is 30 shekels of silver. But all I know is that it's 15 shekels of silver, literally silver, and everything that Hosea could have put together to buy her back. Barley. Uh, silver, barley, um, they would have brought everything that he could to win her back. Everything that he had for this woman that didn't even love him, he's willing to do it. Now, whether it actually added to 30 pieces of silver, it's really be an interesting case, uh, because that's the price of a slave, according to Exodus. That's the price of a slave. She was a slave. She was a slave. She was a sex slave to her lovers. She was a sex slave to the idols. Israel was bent on worship of idols and God wanting to win her back. And Hosea used everything to win her back. Now, the Bible says we've also been bought with the price of redemption. Now, Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, but what he paid was his own blood. And Peter reminds us that we've been bought with the price. Paul says it too. With the precious blood of Jesus, we've been purchased. And so our life is not our own anymore. Hosea's life was not his own. Hosea obeyed what God said to do. And we've been redeemed. We've been bought with the price, just like Gomer, just like Israel. But look what it says here in verse 3. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor you shall have a man. So I will also be like that toward you. And this is interesting because um, the price that he paid was to win her back and as he brought her back, he's very firm with her. You're going to stay with me for many days, and you're not going to go around whoring around. You're going to stay with me, and you're not going to know a man, and I'm not going to be like that toward you. For a time, Hosea and Gomer lived without sexual intimacy of husband and wife for a time. Now, what does that symbolize? It symbolized something that Israel's going to go through. Israel's going to go through a time where they will not have the affections of God as they once had. There'll be a time where Israel is not going to have the affections that they had of, with the Lord 
that were married to God, and for a time, God's going to put her away, bring her back, but he's not going to commune with her as he once did. And you'll see that in a moment. Because of this reason, obviously Hosea and Gomer had to work out their relationships. And if you've been in that situation or know a couple in that situation, you're trying to win each other back, trying to get back together, it is very wise to come back together after a while and not become intimate right away, especially after adultery has, uh, has been part of that relationship, uh, simply to work things out. And Gomer's put away as a, as a wife, but yet has no sexual intimacy with Hosea for a time. Now, in verse 4 explains it more. The sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without a sacred pillar, without an ephod, and without a household of idols. Israel will remain for many days without a king, sacrifice, sacred pillar. Now, some of these things are bad. Idols, house of idols. Uh, kind of reminds you of Judges 17, the man who had all these idols in his house. A sacred pillar. These are things where you sacrifice to foreign gods. Um, a king or a prince, a sacrifice. An ephod is what the priest would wear. Uh, and then the high priest had the ephod with the, 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 the tribes of Israel and the stones that were on the ephod, represented the, the, each tribe of Israel. So these are good things and bad things together. What is it trying to say here? You're not, the sons of Israel will not have any of this for a while, nor good nor bad. I'm going to tell you how this is an amazing prophecy. We know the story of what happened to the northern kingdom. Assyria came, deported them. Judah went to Babylon. Israel came back under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, under Nehemiah. Then they dealt with the Greeks. Then they dealt with the Romans. Then they were dispersed again after 70 AD, after the Messiah came and died. The temple was destroyed after Jesus ascended 40 years later, just about. The temple was destroyed, and they had the big diaspora. That's been the story of Israel. They've never been the same since the kingdom of David. It's a split kingdom. Then they were exiled, and they came back for a while, but they were always subject to other nations. Think about it today. Is Israel a secular nation or a religious nation? Hard to tell, isn't it? Is a Jew a secular person or a spiritual person? You really can't tell, can't you, sometimes? It's like they don't worship the true God in a sense of the Messiah. They, 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 they have a semblance of God in terms of uh, what they're supposed to be. But you know, many times within the Jewish circles, if you go to synagogues, whether it's uh, Reformed Judaism and things, they don't even believe the Old Testament. They, they don't even care about the Old Testament. It's Talmud, it's Talmud, it's the Talmud, the Mishnah and all these things, but they don't even really read the Old Testament. It's like they have it, but they don't. Now, ask any Jew if they are interested in idolatry. No, they run from idolatry. Even at the time of Jesus, they wouldn't even worship Jesus. They were so afraid because he was a man. They said, oh, you know, we're so, we did this before and it was bad. <laughs> we don't want to do that. A Jew is neither an idolater nor a spiritual person. A Jew does not follow 
God, but yet doesn't follow other gods. Uh, a Jew doesn't have a sacrifice, but yet they don't really have a temple either. They don't really worship God. They're really not a secular nation either. What are they? Now, even the name itself, Israel, would have connected them to God. You, you couldn't describe a Jew or Israel without talking about God. You couldn't. But they're the fur it's the furthest thing from their mind in many times. So Israel's like in limbo. They don't know what, they don't know what they are. They, they, they try to be a secular nation, and then they get attacked, and God delivers them. But they still don't accept God. And what I mean by God is the Messiah, God in Christ. It's exactly what this verse says. They'll be without idols, but they'll be without the true sacrifice. They'll be without an ephod, and they'll be without the sacred pillar. They're neither a secular nation nor a religious nation. They don't know what they are. Why? Because Hosea said, many days from now, Israel will remain like this, without a king, without a prince. They don't, they don't have any identity. If you ask a Jew today what, who they are, they, many times, they don't... Is a Jew a... Think about the word, just idea of Jewish, right? Is Jewish a faith or a race? Both, isn't it? It's kind of like the, it's the most unique thing in the world you can think of. Because, you know, if you think of Islam, right, they could be Tunisian, they could be American, they could be uh, from Saudi Arabia. But this Islam, the, the faith is Islam. There's no race Islam, even though people are trying to tell you that. Racism, Islam. No, race is, is a nation. Islam is a religion. Can't be racist toward Islam. It's not even a race. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But a Jew is different. It, it's a nation, it's a state, it's a people, it's a faith. They don't know what they are. And they have to remain like this because of their unwillingness to accept the sacrifice, the atonement that God has brought for them in their own Messiah. They're in limbo. And Hosea says, many days they'll remain like this. But there's hope. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return, teshuvah, will repent, we would say, and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. But there's hope. And this is, the, this is the, in the midst of this, in the midst of this limbo state, there will come a time, Hosea says, where they're going to repent and actually seek the Lord and David the king. David had been dead for quite a while when Hosea wrote this. The kingdom had been split. Jeroboam II was in charge. He preached all the way until Hezekiah's day in Judah. What is he talking about coming back to David? Well, of course, it's a metaphor for the Messiah, the son of David. They will come back to the Messiah, and it's going to be Israel. Remember, Israel had not accepted the line of David. They had gone with Jeroboam, right, in the north. They had rejected the line of David. But there's come a coming time, there's coming a time where they will be united, and Israel will accept David the king. In this case, the son of David. It's a metaphor for the Messiah. Even in the New Testament, Jesus, son of David. It becomes a metaphor for the Messiah. And they're going to come trembling to the Lord. You see that? They're going to come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness. When is it going to happen? 
in the last days. In the last days. Back again to that picture. There's an immediate picture of Hosea. He's talking to them about their idolatry, their immorality, their lack of worship, their raising cakes and all these things. And then in the midst of that little five-verse uh, story or uh, scripture, he points them right to the end. But there's an end to this. Israel's coming back to the Lord. Israel will come trembling back to God. Not just to God, but to the king, David. They've never been under David in, in such a degree. For a short time, they were under David and Solomon, but they split. Ever since then, Israel's been in limbo. They don't know who they are. They, don't know, they have no identity because their identity is supposed to be in the Messiah Christ. And they've rejected that. And they will bring them back. God will bring them back. And quoting from Paul the Apostle, it says in Romans 11, the natural branches, if they repent from unbelief, they will be grafted in again. It's unbelief that has, uh, has caused them to be broken. Remember it says in Romans 11, God broke the natural branches, he broke them off, and the new or the wild olive have been grafted in. But then he says, something's going to happen at the end. The natural ones, he'll be put back in if they don't remain in unbelief. So if a natural branch, a Jewish branch, a Jewish person, does not continue in unbelief, but repents and seeks after the Lord, those are very key words there, they'll be grafted back in, Paul says, and then all of Israel will be saved. Fascinating. Wonderful prophecy. And they will return to his goodness. You know, the Lord loves Israel so much. He loves his people like a husband loves his wife. With tremendous passion and pain, he sought after her, and he wants her back. And he's put her back in the land, just like he said. He will sow her back in the land, and he will call her my people. But they'll go through this discipline time. You will live with Hosea for a while with no intimacy. Right now, the Jewish people are back in the land, but there's no intimacy with the Messiah right now. They're there. They're in limbo, but they, few of them recognize Christ. Praise the Lord. But the majority are still atheists, are still secular. They're God's people, but there's no intimacy with Jesus. You have the intimacy with Christ. Can you believe that? What is theirs? Like Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews, John 4. You have it. The mercies, you have. The love, the intimacy, you have it. Gentiles, who were not his people, are now called the sons of the living God. What belongs to them, you have. What is rightfully theirs through the prophets and the Messiah and the New Testament, you have. Why? Because of his mercy. A people that were not his, he brought them in so that you can be grafted in. Amazing. But quoting that, I always have to quote this. In the same passage, Paul says, be careful not to boast against the natural branches because it's the root that upholds you. You don't uphold it. It upholds you. And if the natural branches were cut off, the wild one can also be cut off as well. That's what Paul says. If you fall into unbelief, the same thing could happen to the Jews. That happened to the Jews could happen to us. In the same passage, he says, be careful not to boast. Because the natural branches were cut off because of unbelief, 
Make sure it doesn't happen to you because God is able to bring them back. Amazing, isn't it? And so this, as we close, it will happen in the last days. And just to encourage you in your marriage, do all that you can. Do all that you can to stay faithful. Do all that you can to maintain faith in your marriage. Do all that you can to seek and resolve those issues. Seek someone that can help you if you're struggling, if you're having a hard time, if you're dealing with something. Don't just swallow it up and just, I'm going to tough it out. Get prayer. Find somebody that can help you. Humble yourself. Seek the counsel of the Lord. Fast, pray. Don't give up on your marriage. God certainly did not give up on Israel. We shouldn't give up on ours either. And who knows? All the struggles and all the difficulties that you've had in your marriage, God will use it to give you a message. To give you a message. That's what happened to Hosea. What a powerful message he had. And whatever your experiences have been in marriage, whatever God has done in your life through marriages, God can use it to give you a message, to preach to other people. God wants a people for himself. Just like Israel brought them back, the church is the bride of Christ. God wants that bride to be beautiful as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. And tonight we praise you, Lord, that you are a faithful keeper of your oath and of your covenant. Lord, help us to be faithful in our oath and our covenant and our relationship with you and our relationship with others. Lord, I praise you tonight, and I give you honor and praise for the marriages that are here represented. And Lord, we know that in no way we say every, any marriage is perfect. Lord, they've all had difficulties and issues and struggles. But I pray, Lord God, we would humble ourselves tonight and honor you in it by staying faithful. Uh, Lord, that we would not be led by our emotions or feelings or thoughts and, th and thinking that maybe it could be better if I wasn't or be better if we were apart. Lord, I pray that uh, each couple would seek you and turn and return to their marriage. Uh, Father, I praise you tonight and bless you. Uh, we lift up the marriages to you, Lord God, but we also lift up the Jewish people tonight. As we said, there are people in limbo. They don't know. They don't know if to have an ephod or to have a house of idols. They don't know to have a king or a prince. They don't know what they are, who they are, because they lost their identity in Christ. They don't know who he is. Please, Lord, open their eyes. And um, Lord, help them with the hardening of the heart and soften it, Lord, so they will come to know you before this, the, this time of Jacob's trouble. Lord, thank you for your hope and encouragement is for us to witness and to share with the Jewish people, that their Messiah has come and died and resurrected and will come again for them. But Lord, please protect this, that nation, protect this nation as well, and help us to bless Israel. Help us to pray for peace of Jerusalem. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.